So we're in Romans chapter 11, and we're in the last section of Romans 11. It's a very key chapter in the epistle of Paul to Romans because it represents a kind of pivot point. What has gone before is very much um, core doctrinal truth, and what comes next is very much the application of uh, those core truths. And there is a very clear punctuation at the end of chapter 11, which um, almost reflects back on what Paul has been arguing, the, the case he's been presenting reflects back on that and then projects us forward into what comes next. So let's read, um, well, I should tell you where we're going. We're going to um, spend a little time talking about the biblical definition of a mystery. So you'll look out for that in our reading. Um, the first part of what we will read is a definitive statement on the future salvation of the people of Israel. That's very clear. I'd like us to spend a little time on a statement that's made, God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. I quote. So look out for the context of that. And then uh, the last point will be um, a kind of unpicking of Paul's response to what he's been teaching in the, in the previous 11 chapters. And it's a doxology and we'll enjoy that together. So let's read Romans chapter 11 verses 25 to 36. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I t take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned... They are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were, at once, who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he have, may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory for ever. Amen. Our first point is a biblical definition of mystery, and it's from verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. He's addressing uh, the problem that we've been considering in the, in the Roman church. It was a mixture of uh, local people, let's put it that way, who would be Gentiles, non-Jews, who had been saved and brought into the Church of God, 
and those who were Jews and were living in Rome and they were converted Jews and were also in churches of, of God, in the church of God. And you get the sense there was a bit of a, a kind of elitism going on. Um, not sure who thought they were superior. Maybe the Jews thought so, maybe the Gentiles thought so. But there was this kind of sense of um, difference between the two. That's what Paul has been addressing. And he is saying that um, he wants to make it clear that the mystery he's been talking about, they both, both sides need to understand so that they won't be conceited, arrogant, um, shall we say, full of their own importance. And he, he describes it as a mystery. I looked up the English definition of a mystery and it's something that's impossible to explain. And it cites uh, unidentified flying objects as, a, as an example of it. It's something that you see and you don't understand. And there isn't even a, a credible explanation for it. Um, seeing something with no explanation is not the biblical definition of a mystery. I'm going to suggest that there are two ways that the word mystery is used in the Bible. Probably the most common is a truth once hidden, now revealed. So um, something that was hidden in the past, uh, it just wasn't explained and therefore wasn't understood, uh, now is no longer hidden because it's been revealed, it's been explained and it can be understood. That's um, one context in which the word mystery is used. Another, which is substantially different, is a truth about God that is simply beyond human capacity to understand. And I would draw a, um, a distinction between an explanation and understanding. I would say the height of arrogance is when we see something and it's explained to us and we say, don't understand that, so I'm not going to believe it. Um, I'm very I've said this before, that I'm very struck with uh, David Attenborough and how um, rich his knowledge and understanding is of the natural world. And we, we love those programmes, don't we? Um, but he's a, a self-professed, almost like a... Um, someone who preaches atheism and when he's pressed on why he doesn't believe there is a God it's because he sees things um, and the explanation that's given he doesn't understand and, and mostly it's to do with the wrong that's in the world and therefore he says I cannot believe it. Now I would say that, that we'll come back to this in a second but that is um, really quite an arrogant thing for someone to say and I have great respect for him in so many ways but to say I can't believe it because I don't understand it um, and it, you know, that, that's one way of looking at a mystery there's a really great um, hymn it says, a line in a hymn it says where reason fails with all her powers there faith prevails and love adores. I'll say it again. Where reason fails with all her powers, 
Their faith prevails and love adores. So the Christian view of this kind of mystery which we see, it's explained and we don't understand. An example might be, for example, God's love. Um, it's beyond our comprehension. Um, we don't understand it, but we embrace it with faith and believe it with all our hearts. Another example is the Trinity. Um, God, you know, single God in three persons. That's very clear in Scripture. And we see it. Um, we, we appreciate the explanation. And it's beyond our ability to understand. But through faith, we accept it. And... Um, I would say there's an element of both of these things, of truth previously hidden, now revealed, explained, understood, um, and accepted. There's an element of that kind of mystery in Paul's arguments, but also the um, idea that some of these things we see, they're explained, and they're beyond our understanding, but we accept them through faith. Um, that's there as well. well. We'll again come back to that's That's the first point, a definition of mystery, as we would see in the Bible. Then we have a, a definitive statement in the passage we've read, and it's almost like a conclusion. Um, and it's a, a statement for the benefit of the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish -Jew Christians in the Church of God in Rome, that... Um, all will be saved in the future. Sorry, I'll say that. All Jews will be saved in the future. Today is a day of grace. And as Gentiles, we have access to God's grace. And we enjoy that. Um, and the passage before us says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. So it's almost like in this day of grace, there is a little bit of a, a, a parking of God's promises to the Jews. And during that time, it gives us non-Jews access to God's grace. Um, not precluding Jews, they also have access to God's grace. But the point is, when this day of grace is finished, the kind of refocus on the Jews will happen. Really important point, actually there's two, point, two important points. It says all of Israel will be saved. That's a direct quote from verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. I, I wanna read um, just a selection of verses from the prior 11 chapters that demonstrate what's meant by all Israel. It's the, the chosen ones in Israel and that's made very clear. So it's not a matter of if you're a Jew, you're saved. It's a, a matter of God's grace in a chosen individual. And that's, you know, we're, we're edging on the mystery now as we consider this. Um, so as one point, uh, we need to understand what's meant by all of Israel. And the second point is that it's on exactly the same basis. So the future salvation of Israel will be on the same basis as our salvation, which is by grace, through faith, because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, I've got 
four passages that are only a few verses each from earlier on in the book that in Paul's argument that make these points really clear. The first one, I'm going to give it the title God's Sovereign Choice, also known as the Doctrine of Election. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. We've already been to these places, of course, but Romans 9, verse 6 to 8. It's a verse I use to, uh, that kind of appeals to me as one that underlines this truth of God's sovereign choice, bearing in mind it's a mystery, it's something we see, it's something explained, it's something that we don't necessarily understand, but we accept it by faith. It says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is as though it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's a quotation. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So I think that is very clear that the all Israel that we've read in, in chapter 11 are those that are chosen. Next um, title is that it's not by human effort, but it's by God's mercy that everyone is saved, be it um, Jew or Gentile. And we'll go uh, stay in, in chapter 9 and verse 16. It does not therefore depend on a man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, this is salvation. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Difficult, really difficult statements, but they're there, they're clear, and while we might not necessarily um, understand them, we accept them by faith. So the salvation of the Jews, uh, be that present or future, the salvation of non-Jews um, are by God's sovereign choice, and it's not through human effort, but it's by God's mercy. The next section is through faith. And we'll go to Romans 10, a very familiar passage. Romans 10, verse 8. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew, key, key, key section here, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to talk a little bit in, the, in a few minutes about... Um, paraphrasing scripture for our own benefit that's where you, you look at a verse and you rewrite it in your own way to get a better understanding it's a dangerous thing to do but also a very helpful thing to do that verse we've just read 
I don't think how it could be rewritten to make it any clearer that um, there is no difference, uh, Jew or Gentile, and it's the same Lord who's Lord of all, and he blesses all who come to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, salvation is through faith for all. And the last one is salvation is by grace. And we'll go to where Giles took us to earlier, which is the beginning of chapter 11. And it says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then there is no longer, it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Again, it's just a very clear statement. So we have the salvation of the Jews, present in the day of grace or at a future point, and we have the salvation of the Gentiles, and it's, it's done with the same salvation that God has for all men. It's by his sovereign choice, the doctrine of election. It's by, not by human effort, but by God's mercy. It is through faith, and it's by grace. And um, Paul makes this point, and it's like a, what we've read is like a summary and um, he then moves on to the next phase of his teaching. I just think it's great to be, even though it's a complex, difficult part of the Bible, it's a, a very key um, range of doctrine that we need to accept through faith and celebrate. That's what Paul was doing. We'll come back to that in a second. Number three of my four points is this expression in uh, verse, uh, what verse was it? Uh, verse 29, that says, God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. It's a standalone statement, and I had to look at what irrevocable means. Literally, in the Greek, it means uh, without repentance. But maybe a better way of understanding it is what's said can't be unsaid or what's done can't be undone. And um, it's, it's saying that God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. The reason why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it is I've, I've heard teaching that... Um, Gifts here are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if I have, let's say, um, the gift of evangelism, and I say this respectfully, I'm stuck with it. You know, it's irrevocable. It's what God has given me. Uh, I've got to work with it. I struggle with that because that's neither my experience nor my observation about other people. I see people who, uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit inside them, and the spiritual gifts very clearly evolve with their time and their circumstances. And I, I always quote my dad with this because he was a very gifted teacher, a Bible teacher at one time, and then as he and, and he exercised that gift, and there's there's many people, including myself, who can testify to that. But as he got older, um, he became less able in that area, and his service transitioned to a more pastoral activity. So when he retired, he would spend time visiting people. 
uh, less time with the young people, more time with people on their own, and um, it became a pastoral service. So I think it's wrong to say that spiritual gifts are irrevocable, uh, specific spiritual gifts are irrevocable. Of course, we've all got spiritual gifts, and my point is that um, they are given by the Holy Spirit to help us in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Why do I emphasise this point? It's because if we take that line with this verse, we miss a real gem, and the gem is about eternal security. It's the context is the gift of salvation. It's God's sovereign election of me and my salvation. And it's his calling. And that is irrevocable. What has um, been said cannot be unsaid. What has been done cannot be undone. And when God um, chose me and chose you and called me and called you and saved me and saved you, uh, it's a done deal and it cannot be undone. And I just think that is a real gem of a truth. It's one of those things that um, uh, it's, it's so important to get the verse in its context. Otherwise it can be spun into something that's really not very accurate at all. Uh, we need to... Oh, I've got, got one, one more thing about irrevocable. And um, I was trying to think of an, an example of um, where something God has, has said cannot be reversed. So it says uh, the definition was without repentance. So it's not, going, it's, it's not about going back on something. And you can read about it in Numbers 23. It's the story of Balak and Balaam. Really interesting. Balak was a king who was terrified of God's people. And he employs Balaam um, to say a curse, pays him to say a curse against God's people. And Balaam accepts the deal. And he comes to deliver the curse and it comes out as a blessing. And Balak says, what are you playing at? You know, and he, he says, well, these are God's people. And I, you know, God's given me this blessing. And it says in verse 20, in 19 of Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? And Balak has another go, um, and another blessing comes out, an oracle. And it's just a fascinating story, and it's a really good illustration of when God says something, it, it can't be reversed. And that's the story of my salvation and your salvation. Let's go to um, uh, the fourth point, and really we're probably not going to spend as much time as we ought to on this, but it's Paul's response to the mystery of the divine workings, and it's a, a doxology, um, and it's those precious verses in verses 33 to 36. Uh, a doxology is a short hymn of praise. It's... Um, my observation from Paul's doxology here is it's a, a rearrangement of God's word said back to him. That's the point about paraphrase. We can't, we can't rearrange God's word and build a doctrine on it because it's false. But when it comes to worship, we can harvest truths about God and say them 
say them back to him. That's, a, that's the, the stuff of prayer and the stuff of worship. Um, and maybe we'll see that in, in a second. But the other thing I wanted to mention is spontaneity. You get the impression here that Paul's got to this point in his argument and he's overwhelmed with the ministry, sorry, with the mystery, that it's, um, there's lots of truth once hidden, now revealed, explained and understood. There's lots of truth that was hidden, now revealed, explained and not really grasped because it's beyond our grasp but embraced through faith. And as he's basking in this amazing truth, you get this sense of he um, spontaneously just goes into worship. And that's really what verses 33 to 36 are about. I wanted to make the point that maybe we're not very good at spontaneity. Sometimes I speak for myself. And there is a place for rehearsed worship get that from Psalm 45 my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king really important that um, our spiritual sacrifice the fruit of lips is thought through but there is also a place for spontaneity and um, I would just encourage brothers and sisters uh, brothers especially in in the remembrance that's our opportunity to be prepared to be spontaneous uh, sometimes because that's the Spirit's work. Um, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Saying, um, I get the sense that Paul is reciting um, God's word that he's stored up in his heart. In my NIV uh, study Bible you get those little letters that link to other other passages of scripture uh, in these um, four verses I count 13 references to Old Testament and um, the compilers of the, the NIV of or that particular um, version of the NIV have spotted links to 13 Old Testament scriptures in this statement from Paul there are two in quotations. That's verses um, 34 and 35. So that's direct quotation from Job and from Isaiah. So that's very clear. But the first statement is linked to Psalm 95. Um, something that we can um, perhaps take away as a, as a little piece of homework. But I see Psalm 95, Psalm 139, um, several links into Job, Isaiah 40, um, Ecclesiastes, there's um, Jeremiah. So um, worship and expressing our appreciation for God, bearing in mind we have the Holy Spirit to help us, is, is often drawn from God's word and I think this is a lovely example of that. I just wanted to really finish by looking at the the content of what Paul says. And there's some really nice symmetry about what he says. Oh, the depth. Stop at depth. That's in verse 33. <clears throat> Second half of the verse is how unsearchable. And a bit further on, uh, beyond tracing out. We're talking about things that are so deep that they're unsearchable and that they're beyond tracing out. 
and this is Paul's theme. I've been delighting in the mystery and it's deep and it's unsearchable and it's beyond my understanding. Oh, the depth of the riches, highlighted riches in verse 33. And then you go to verse 35 and it's, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Uh, oh, the depth of the riches. God owns everything. So the wonder is, you know, we have nothing to give that he doesn't already own. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom in verse 33. And a bit further on in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways. Wisdom, judgments, ways. And then verse 34, who has been his counsellor? You've got judgments and ways again. Just got this sense of Paul enjoying the the depth of the character of God in, in all of its wonder and it's the product of his meditation. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge in verse 33. Verse 34, um, who has known the mind of the Lord? His knowledge is, inf is infinite. It's a, a passage of scripture that we should... Um, tend to and, and delight in and memorise. But um, let's just conclude really with verse 36. And it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And my thought though this morning is that um, from him is a statement about he is the origin of all things. Through him he is the sustainer of all things and to him he is the reason for all things. And I would just encourage us to compare notes with Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 to 20 because you get exactly the same things expressed by the same person, the Apostle Paul, but in a different context. Shall we have our closing prayer?